don't feel you have to do it all at the same time. Make some decision about what's important to you for your self-worth, what's important to the family from a financial point of view, and how can you get resources there to help support those dreams. Hi, I'm Nancy Scanlon Coppler, and welcome to Woman Overboard. Have you ever been told that you go overboard? Or maybe you have a friend, a partner, or a crazy aunt who overdoes it at the holidays. Someone who is overly ambitious, overly excited, and gets overwhelmed because she tends to overdo everything. Well, welcome to my world. I'm Nancy Scanlon Coppler, and this is Woman Overboard, a show about women, leaders, mothers, and entrepreneurs who are dedicated to making a difference. My guests would not be where they are today without being the overachievers that they are. Women who I believe put a positive spin on the words, woman overboard. It was a hilarious meeting because I'm dressed in, anyone can remember villager clothes, right? I had, it was in Memphis, Tennessee, December 20th, and we were invited, I was invited with my brother to a Christmas trimming party at an unfurnished house, and the only heat in the house was from the gas oven. So they opened up the gas oven and brought a fan in to blow the heat into the little Well, I was never a hippie hippie. And so what I had is I had my little Mary Tyler Moore flip oh, yes, and I my villager pin and my shorts and my turtleneck and my loafers and my knee socks. And I walk in. Everyone else, all the men, guys, are in tie-dyes and jeans. I didn't even own a tie-dye or a jean, except for this one guy. And he was the cutest guy in the room. And he had on slacks, a white turtleneck, and a blue jacket, which I found out later were all dead men's clothes, which is another story. <laughs> I didn't hear that story. I didn't hear that story. And so anyway... I turned to my brother and said, I'm going to go meet that guy over there. Now, I'm 19. I don't drink. I'm a goody two-shoes. And this guy had what looked like a scotch in his hand and apparently turned to his friend and said, I'm going to go meet her. We literally met halfway in the room, and we've been together ever since. Oh, my gosh. And, and tell everybody what he was. Oh, well, so how did he? After about 
five hours of conversation that night. We walked in about 7.30, and by 2 a.m., I said, I really have to go home. But I observed him when we talked, and he didn't tell me. But I kind of figured out he must be studying for the priesthood. I think it was the way he held his <laughs> No, we of course we didn't kiss the night. I just first day. But he would ask me, what do you think about Vatican II? Hello. <laughs> Nothing like a hot date discussing Vatican II. <laughs> well, when I answered it, he goes, oh. And he says, how do you know this? I said, well, I'm thinking of being a nun. He goes, get out of here. <laughs> the next time I saw him, I invited him to my parents' New Year's Eve party. My brother was turning 21. So Mike was about two hours late, and my sister saying, yeah, the man of your dreams is two hours late. You know? <laughs> and so what happened is he comes to the door, and he says, I'm really sorry, but... Your your home is about 40 minutes from my home, and I have six brothers and sisters. Oh. And I asked for the car, but Mom said only if you drop everybody else off wow. at their parties. So now it's 8 o'clock, and no cell phones. No cell phones. And he didn't even have my telephone number, so he couldn't call. Yeah, we weren't very suave at dating, neither one of us. He's got his black seminary suit on with a black tie, but... At this point, I still don't know he's a seminarian. And so I introduced him to my father. Now, my father is a very dis- was a very distinguished, handsome man. And I remember he had this very lovely silk uh, gray jacket on. And without saying a word, my father says, sticking out his hand, Son, haven't I met you somewhere else before? Oh. And my father stopped and he said, son, he said, yes, sir, I met you last night at the seminarian's dinner. Oh, my God, that's how I found out. Oh, my goodness, I would not have upset that you were pulling out seminarian and I had a My dear, I work way too hard to get men to join the priesthood for you to be pulling them out. And I will tell you, on our 10th anniversary, my father gave a toast, and he said, if I ever have a chance to, to come back in another life, I want to be my caring, oh, the nicest man I know. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. 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 And he has been such a wonderful back for you. Yeah. So how has he, how has that worked with him? You've been kind of the front man, front yeah. woman, and he's been working with you all this time. Laura, you and Mike seem to be one of the tightest couples I've ever met, so in love with each other. And, and I know you work together. Are there any, have there been any bumps in the road working together? Never bumps in the road working together, but bumps in the road in life, for <laughs> sure. You can't be together for 50 years. Two years dating and then 48 years marriage without bumps in the road. So I don't want to give people the impression we're perfect. What I say, there is nothing that $20,000 worth of therapy can't do. <laughs> So the therapist even goes to a therapist, right? That's the best way. I call it a tune-up. It's like taking your car in to change the oil. Every now I'll say to Mike, hey, it's time for a tune-up. I want to know, why is it that all husbands feel like they're going to be 
murdered or, or burned at the stake if they have to go see a psychologist. But no, it's because we typically burn them at the stake. <laughs> we feel safe. I love it. You have also a wonderful, beautiful, intelligent, and very together daughter in your beautiful Lauren. How were you able to be such a positive role model while you were doing all the traveling and all the hours spent away? Because you obviously had a great influence on her. Well, something about Lauren that I find very interesting is she is so humble. She is much more like Mike than she is me. However, what I've seen the past 10 years is she has just blossomed since I left the company. Her passion for the company comes through in her uh, webcast because we, we're in 52 countries around the world oh because of her. We're working with over 200 Fortune 500 companies. She added women in leadership. She expanded outplacement. And now, you heard it first here, is that we're starting elder care coaching. And so... She's embracing things that I had recommended this 10 years ago. <laughs> no, but now she sees I only want her success. And I don't want to tell her how to do it. I just want to help her be able to do it. That's wonderful. So why do I go for the elder care coaching? <laughs> You've also done something else that's very, very unusual. With Lauren being your only child, most parents who own their businesses either directly or posthumously handle over their children. And their children expect that. And yet I was surprised one night when we were at a casual dinner, the two of us, I think at uh, my husband's grandparents' apartment. Yeah, I think it's like... Uh, it's now our apartment. It's now your apartment. What kind of chance is that, right? And you told us you actually made Lauren buy the company. And I almost fell out of my chair. Really? How did you make that decision? Easy. We didn't have any retirement. Oh, they're being so strict. They don't want her to feel unfeel. But you needed the money. Well, the reality is we had enough money. Right. But I do not like children to feel entitled because then there's no heart oh, yeah. in there. Yeah. They're all of you children. Yeah. 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 And so I said to her, well, honey, I know you would like to take it to the next level, the company, but we could sell it for X amount of money. And I'd like to see that money because this is my child. You know, it's my second child. It's your sister. Lauren used to say, Impact Group is the sister I never had a fifth grade. And she said, and I don't mind sharing my mother with oh. Impact Group. She was very poetic about it. I said to her, I don't want to drain the money that you will be bringing in, but let's agree on a price over a 10-year period so we won't be taxed heavily. And then at the end of the year or monthly, whatever you figure out, You'll pay us our agreed-upon price, and you pay it from profits, so you don't have to hurt your own finances. And that's how we did it. So your advice to other parents who have children who seem to be greedy and expecting them to hand them things, you would tell them to work it out the same way, or would they go to a 
a counselor or would it be a financial person? Barnes says the nicest thing about being an only child is there was only one share of the business. She said her friends whose parents had businesses that have four to five children, it's much more difficult to divide those monies. And if you do it according to who works in the company, what about the heirs who chose to raise children or raise something else? So I'm not going to pretend to tell other people how to do it, but what I would say is make your children work for it. Do not just give a candidate to Great advice. And what advice, speaking of mothers with five children or four children, what advice do you give to other working mothers with your entrepreneurial spirit and drive who may have one or two or even three children? I mean, can they juggle it all? Is it possible? Well, I don't think you could have it all at the same time. You can have parts of it at the same time. But what helps is if you have a husband who once supports you and values you and is willing to do things that some men or women may not be willing to do. For example, I would be gone for a week at a time during our startup, and I would make friends with realtors and sleep on their couch because I couldn't afford right, uh, a hotel. Right. And you also have to have a trusting husband so that you're gone for seven days, and it always entailed the Saturday night over because do you remember the days when staying over Saturday night, things were cheaper? Right. Absolutely. So, uh, but as a counselor, what would you say to so many single mothers out there who have to make a living without a husband, without a spouse or a partner? That's in how they do it. Question. What I would say is don't feel you have to do it all at the same time. Make some decision about what's important to you for your self-worth, what's important to the family from a financial point of view, and how can you get resources there to help support those dreams to happen. It could be as simple as um, a nanny, or if that's too expensive, you get a college kid. I made my college payments from babysitting four nights a week at uh, 25 cents to 50 cents an hour. Now, now I understand it's five to seven dollars an hour, Nancy, and you babysit five hours, that's a lot of money, right? At least to me still. And so you've got to figure out creative ways. You form consortiums with other mothers. It takes a village to raise a child, right? And what I would say to single mothers is, you won't always be a mother, so give it as much focus as you can. But the number one thing is to just love them. And then if you have to be gone, make them feel important that you're contributing to the success of the family. And when they call you, like my daughter has and says, Mom, I have a secret to tell you. I don't think I even like my kids. I said, honey, you don't have to like them. You just have to raise them. I <laughs> What a great advice. And I said, you know, when you were that age, I didn't like you very much either. Oh, that's hilarious. I mean, there's times when you, maybe not with one child, but when you've got four or five of them, you know, like a little barrel monkey. It's very amazing. What you did is unbelievable. Having five children, right in a row. That's amazing. I only had one, and yet I overheard her talking to someone and I know she didn't intend for me to hear her, but she said, you know, there were times I resented my mother traveling all over the country and leaving me alone with Dad. She had never told me that. And yet, she said, but I realized 
now what she was building, and I'm grateful because there's nothing else I would rather do than raise this little baby with the company. Seidman Cancer Center is ranked nationally among the top cancer treatment centers by U.S. News and World Report and has received the highest rating of exceptional from the National Cancer Institute. Based at Barnes Jewish Hospital and Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Seitman treats adults at six locations in Missouri and Illinois and partners with St. Louis Children's Hospital in the treatment of pediatric patients. For more information, visit Seitman.wustl.edu. That's S-I-T-E-M-A-N.wustl.edu. Oh my God, we were on our way on an American Air flight from St. Louis to Chicago for my daughter's college roommate's wedding. And we get up about 500 feet, and then all of a sudden, there's no carry. There's no engine power. One of the engines is on fire. And all of a sudden, I say to Mike, something's not right. Because I was sitting in the back of the plane so I could find two seats together with Mike. And where I was in first class because she was doing all the international travel and she had all these points. And so I said to Mike, Mike, this isn't looking good. He says, no, it's not. And I was not worried because I was not terrified. So I was only terrified that she'd be alone. I wasn't terrified of what would happen. I started to get up, and the stewardess said, what do you think you're doing? I said, my daughter's in first class. I'm going to get up and bring her back here. And she took me by the shoulder. She shut me down, and she said, you're going nowhere, lady. And so I called her and said, how are you? And she goes, Mom, things are really bad. And I go, what's going on? And she goes, they brought an extra pilot into the cockpit, and the woman next to me, She's about 50 years old. This is her first flight. Oh, my gosh. Sobbing, hysterical. So I'm holding her hand and comforting her. And I said, Lauren, here's what I want you both to do. I want you to pray for the pilot. Oh, how pray for the pilot to give him wisdom and strength and fortitude to get this down. And I said, and if you want to come back here, you just run like hell and come back here. You could sit on my lap. It's beautiful. And now I want our audience to hear what little conversation you and Mike got into Well, who are you, Rob? This is like Saturday Night Live. <laughs> well, I said to Mike, well, he looked at me. He said, honey, if we survive this, we are going to retire. Or at least I'm going to retire. 
He said, we put in 14, 15-hour days. He said, I'm done. I am so done. We have enough. We have enough. And so um, I said, okay, well, if we're going to retire, we need an 18-month exit plan. We're going to have to get Lauren. You do the HR. You do the finances. You do the buying and uh, all that kind of stuff. I do the sales. I do the management. And so we sat down there, and I said, give me a piece of paper, and we start mapping out who we have to hire, who will report to who, what's the timeline. And you're right. We're, we're about to go down, and I'm making a strategic yes, plan. I just want to read this because it's so hysterical. He says, by that point, deep into our discussion about how we would exit the company and let Lauren take over, my mentality completely slipped from fear of cracking to fear that we might miss an important detail in our company exit strategy. Or worse, what if Lauren didn't even want the company? Yeah. I'd completely forgotten about the fire Lauren said was raging in the left engine of the plane. And as I'd later find out, that fire was right next to us on the wall of the plane. So right next to Mike and I. In fact, Nancy, Mike, who you know is cool as a cucumber, yes. he was looking out the window and the pilot mistakenly said, I am going to try to turn this plane around. He never told us the engines were on fire, but he lost hydraulics. So he was struggling. It took 45 minutes to turn the plane around from Scott Air Force Base to Lambert. And what happened is Mike is looking out the window, and between Illinois, there's lots of flat land. He says, just land there and that flat land. Land in that land. I mean, Mike shouting this out loud, and shouting is not his. He didn't have the pilot's phone number. He can call him. But anyway, we looked out the window, and there are helicopters. There are fire engines. The uh, runways filled with foam, and they go like this, which means fly by again. You know, circling your fingers. Yeah, and they were afraid going to the east or west, there wouldn't be enough runway. Ah, they wanted us to go east because that could be the longer runway. And so all of a sudden, literally, we land. And everyone breaks up. I'm, everyone was on the ground crying, sobbing. Women had their rosary beads out. People, I'm Everybody was on the phone saying goodbye to their wives, saying goodbye to their children. Um, let me call my mother. You know, the, oh my God, thinking about it, I get goosebumps now. But this is hilarious. Here I'm in the most dramatic time of my life. They come in. They won't let us off the plane. I go, what? And the plane is about to burst in flames, and the firemen come in in space suits. They're all in this headgear. Nice, they're safe. That's exactly what I thought. And they pull the lining of the airplane out. It is between Mike and I. It's black, burnt. Oh, and they said five more minutes and we would have exploded. Oh my God. Did they get you out of the rear of the plane? No, they get you out. We finally, they said, Leave your articles here. I said, you didn't do such a good job. <laughs> Flying this baby, I'm not leaving anything on this plane. So you took everything with me. You took everything with me. So I'm going down the steps. My phone rings. It's my sister. Were you on that plane? Yes. Oh, I love that sweater. Where'd you get it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, but, but she saw you in the, in, 
running down the steps. What were you wearing? And she saw the green suit, right? And you made it to the wedding. How did you get to the wedding? Did you drive? I gave Lauren a choice. I said, do you want to go? She was going to do a reading at the mass. Or do you want to take another plane? Or do you want to drive? She says, let's take the next plane out. Let's get back on the horse. You're brave. It wasn't morning. It was 13.03. I looked it up this morning. It was 103. Did I give you the tail number and all that? No, I just got it from looking it up on the Internet. I'm so impressed. It was in the news. Okay, so now I have to tell you something. This is really fun. Okay. We get into Chicago. There are cameras everywhere. They're trying to interview people on the flight. There was a near crash in St. Louis today, you know, and no one would talk to them. They were shaking still. And you said, I'll talk. I said, I'll talk because this is amazing. And so I told them, so the mother of the bride was dressing for a rehearsal dinner, a rehearsal dinner. And she said, what is Laura doing in our bedroom? <laughs> walks in, and here I am on TV. And she goes, holy mackerel. So we walk into the rehearsal dinner, and we get a standing ovation. Oh, okay. oh my God. to be made into a, a movie. Yeah, I've already picked that. I want, Netflix, I want Sandra, um, um, Sandra Bullock to play me. Oh, my gosh. So this is hey. Yeah. She's almost as pretty as you are. Oh, you're so sweet. So, okay, aside from that, you've had a couple of other near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. You were, unfortunately, diagnosed with breast cancer. How many years ago was that? Well, I had it twice. Twice in 2001 and 2013. And in 2001, when you got that mammogram, you left for Reno. Something happened. You said you would advise no one ever to do. Tell us about that story. Well... I got the call in Reno about the mammogram, and they said, we want you to have it biopsied right now before it goes anywhere. And not knowing anyone except our builder, I called him, and he said, well, I know this surgeon. Well, what did I know about biopsies of breasts? And this madman went in me, uh, took about a four-inch square mass, and missed the margin of a a tumor that was the size of my baby pinky fingernail. Oh, my gosh. And I, I, I came out so sad when they said we missed the margins. I had to have that explained to me what it meant. And I said to Mike, let's fly back to Sightman. And my secretary sent me the head of Sightman, which is Tim Everline. I called them personally, and they go, we're not accepting. Tim is the director. He's not accepting any new patients. I said, but I'm calling from Reno, and I want to come in and get the best. She, she said, just a minute. She talked to Tim, and he says, yeah, we want to be a national uh, hospital. So, yeah, I'll take her. And oh. so that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship with Tim. We just shared emails today. Wow. So he saved your life. He saved my life, and he did it again. Fantastic. And if there is someone diagnosed with breast cancer, how do they face the fear of that head on? Well, what you need to do is now you have access to research. You need to understand what kind of cancer you have, what's the history of that kind of cancer. Do you need chemo? Do you need uh, radioactive implants? Do you need radiation? But now, a is doing genome personalized 
treatment plans. So if you're in St. Louis, I say you only go to Siteman because they have the latest and greatest technology. In fact, Tim, the last time as he was finishing up, I said, Tim, this is how well he knows me. He said, Laura, I know we, we go to the same balls and this and that. And he said, put on your lowest cut dress and take a marker, a marker and put it around it. And I promise you, I won't go above that. I'll go under it and fish my way in. Oh, wow. We have one of the most fabulous medical facilities here in the world yeah. with Washington University and Barnes. What Washington University is doing for cancer research in men's prostate, I just recommended someone to this phenomenal group, and bar none, the best in the nation, being funded from people all over the United States. And I will tell you, don't go anywhere but Siteman to get your mammograms, and I'll tell you why. I won't name the hospitals, but one of my friends called me up crying, Laura, I've got breast cancer. And so I said, where? And she gave me the hospital name. I said, oh, my gosh, you've got to go to Tim. Let me get you in tomorrow. Go get your films, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, well, I like my doctor. I said, like has nothing to do with curing. Right. You know, and so I said, get your films. Like motherhood. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. And so what happened is he looked at the films. He said, I can't read this. They're so foggy. And so he said, okay, I'm going to walk you down right now and have a new mammogram made. And so he read it and he said, guess what? You've got one on the same list on the far right-hand corner and the far left-hand corner. If we had only taken the one that the other one saw, you'd be dead in two years. Oh, my gosh. So he says, I recommend a mastectomy, and let's figure out how, when, all that. And she, to this day, we're still good friends. She's moved away, but she calls me. And um, she always says, thank you for saving my life. But it's because Tim taught me to ask the question, how old is your x-ray machine or your Mm -hmm. mammogram machine? If it's wow. older than three years old, it's not the newest technology. They get it updated every 18 months. I think I can answer this question myself, but I want to ask you, what would you say your number one skill is that's allowed you to be successful? I would say two things. Well, I'm going to combine them. Probably more like ten. <laughs> My drive to make a difference in this world. It was never about making a name, never about making money. It was about helping those relocating families not go through the emotional pain that I went through. And you know what's so beautiful about that, Laura? That is you as a person, and it's also something you hear more and more. If you follow your passion, the money will follow. Yes. And that's so true in your case. Well, and I'll tell you what I love. It turned out to be Mike's passion because it was our... Our family motto, let us make, dear Lord, let us make a positive difference in the lives we touch. And it became our mission statement. That's beautiful. For the company. And now Lauren has added, let's make a positive difference in the lives we touch, one relationship at a time. Which I love the fact that she tailored it and yes. did it. It's beautiful. 
Um, on the lighter side, you mentioned your book club and how they put up with you putting in and out of the club. Yeah. Are there any favorite books that you have or any authors that have inspired you? Oh, sure, there's many. Oh, so many. I'll tell you my favorite recently in the past year was uh, A Gentleman in Moscow. I oh, love that book. I read that, that book. Isn't that a great book? Oh, my gosh. It was and we just had a lengthy discussion. My friend Elkie led the discussion, and she had a 40-page study guide. Wow. And we went through that, and it was the most in-depth literary analysis we've ever had. It was fabulous. I have to tell you a funny story about that. I was at my son Sam's house, and I said, oh, my gosh, i got to finish this book for my book club tomorrow, and I don't have it. He goes, what book is that, Mom? I said, is that one in Moscow? He said, I just finished it. And he pushed it up, pulled it off his bookshelf. Oh, then he loved it. So it's a good man's and what it is. Uh, Mike's read it. Um, I, I've given it to all the people I know. It's a great one. And what about mentors? You've mentioned mentors, and I know throughout your book you've got many people that were dear friends but also mentors. And, and that is so important. Who would you met, would you want to highlight anybody that was a mentor to you, or what type of person mentored you? In in the when I was young, in my teenage years, my aunt Marge mentored oh, me. Oh, the shoes! Tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, she had no children, and she liked me. I looked like her. So when I was ten, she would invite me to spend two weeks with her during the summer, even though she was the first female vice president wow. in New York. Laura went to New York to visit her Aunt Marge, who was a very successful businesswoman thanks to her career with McCrory's, a five-and-dime store similar to Target. As the first female vice president of the McCrory's chain nationwide, Laura's Aunt Margaret Armstrong always put her best foot forward. Much like Peggy in Mad Men, Aunt Marge paved the way for women in an industry dominated by men. As a young girl from a modest household, Laura was intrigued by her aunt's luxurious lifestyle, and she couldn't resist sneaking a peek into Aunt Marge's most personal possessions. And I would go into her closet in New Jersey, Peggy and the Mad Men time, right? Oh, yeah. And there were 40 pair of navy blue shoes that looked to me almost exactly the same, <laughs> and 40 pair of black shoes exactly the same, and there'd be 40 blue dresses and 40 black dresses. And it's like, and she had her pearls. And that was before hot pink was discovered. But <laughs> the thing that fascinated me the most is when I got nosy and pulled open her drawers and saw her black bras, her blue bras, and her silk, gorgeous lace underwear. I'm thinking, my mom wears a house coat with safety pants. <laughs> and so she kind of inspired me. She never said, be like me. In fact, just the opposite. She said, I would give my right arm to have five children Aww. like your mom does, right? But what she taught me was how to be a lady. She taught me how to dress because she bought me clothes up until my prom. She bought my prom dresses for me and shipped them out. I mean, she was really special. Tight class. Tell the tiny story, if you can abbreviate it about the shoes she locked in her office. Oh, my God, this is hilarious. I must have been about 12. I had my suitcase with me because uh, I had gotten off the plane and took a cab to her office. And she says, we'll go to dinner in the city. And so I said, okay. So she was in the office, and she got her purse, and we walked out. She still had her flats on Ooh, no, no. that she walked around the office because she was crunching numbers and all that, and she bought, she left her office keys in there, and everyone else had gone. 
So she said, and her heels were in there. And her heels were in there. So she said, oh, never mind. We'll go downstairs to Saks. I didn't even know what Saks was. <laughs> so we went downstairs, and she bought the exact same pair of shoes that she had locked in her office. Oh, my gosh. And now I know how she had 40 of the same kind. Right. <laughs> right. And, what, and that must have seemed like such an extravagance to a little poor girl like you, right? Yeah. I, I was... I couldn't believe it, and I thought, well, I'm going to have a lot of nice shoes when I grow up. I'm going to be just like it. So now you're a shoe woman, right? Yeah. Okay, let's talk a little personal here. You remind me, as I read your book, of Batwoman, because you're always setting your alarm for 4 a.m. Now, do you really like that hour of the morning, or have you always been a morning person? No, that was just when I had to get the momentum program and the booklets. There were like four booklets and there were four tapes or eight tapes. I had to write each one of those content pieces. And so what I would do is I'd get up at four and Nancy, I'm not a typist. We had a typewriter. Right, you know, we all did we, that, we right? didn't even have a computer and I would type these things up. We had one of these big, clunky computers at the office. That's the only reason. I usually get up between 7 and 7.30. This morning, I woke up at 5.30, but I didn't Because oh, you were so excited to come here. Yeah, that's it. Well, I wanted to know, what kind of woman is retired? Because I got a text me at 6.15 in the morning. And I'm like, I don't call that retirement. And you're texting me at 6.15. Well, I'm doing some wonderful things. I'm on the executive board of Webster University. And I love that because we're making a difference. They're the only university that has campuses on four continents and 50 cities. Yes, and I'm very proud of that also. Yes. My son happens to teach at the Bangkok campus. You know it. He's brilliant. Everyone loves him. But I also want to mention that you just received the highest award that Webster gives, and that's the Visionary Award. And I want to congratulate you on that, Laura. Thank you. It's a well-deserved award. You've done so much to, to earn that. Thank you. Um, other thing I would like to know is you led such a successful life and you have you have such a wonderful family. But do you have any regrets at all? Mike and I have talked about this. We have only one regret, and that is that we didn't have more children. But growing a company, we didn't have Lauren until I was thirty. And by that time I was in my private practice and I mean I was busy. Mike was high school counseling, so he worked up till 4, then he drove home, and at 4.30, I'd give him the baby, and then I would work from 4.30 to 10.30, and we converted the garage into an office, so I wouldn't have to travel at night and whatnot, and I I was nursing, and of course, a baby is so unhappy at night if she's not with her mother, or you know, and so he went through hell for two years. Well, you know, I guess I only nursed her for... He had trouble nursing, right? <laughs> for nine months. Well, she turned out great. Yeah, she, she is. She's, she's a got, winner. Got the love of But he it. said, you know, this is a little bit too much work to... We were trying to raise the perfect child by being able to do all well, things. And the reality is if we had hired a nanny for a few hours, because we didn't have any time together for two years... And that, that's hard on well, It's worked out. You're so lovey-dovey now. Yeah, and now yeah. you're taking all your trips, all these fabulous trips. Yeah. So, and you like being together. And that's how we you love being together. In fact, I said to him, we don't have any dates. 
uh, appointments we're free all night. He said, great, I'll cook dinner tonight, you cook dinner tomorrow night, and we'll watch this movie. I said, okay, oh, that's cool. Well, not tonight, we're taking you out to dinner. Fill <laughs> in the blank. I don't like blank about myself. Is there anything you don't like about yourself? There's nothing I don't like about you, but I'm just wondering. Everybody has something. Let me think about it for a moment. No one's ever asked that. <laughs> I wish... I would not worry so much if everyone else is happy. Oh. You know, that's, my husband says, why are you worrying about that? Yeah. That's your empathy. Yes. That's your natural. Um, I have friends who have had horrible things happen in their life. And he says, do you look for things to worry about? <laughs> and I go, no, but you love someone. You're top of mind. Right. I am top of mind. It. My happiest moment is... When I'm with my husband, my daughter, my granddaughter, and my new son-in-law, whom I adore. Oh, that's fabulous. That is on my head. That is Kennedy, right? Yes. And she just darling. <laughs> okay, I am the saddest when. Well, I was the saddest when someone I love dies, and we've lost two of Mike's brothers, um, both of our parents. And my best friend died July 13th unexpectedly uh, two years ago. And so, um, I'm so sorry. It, I mean, we were really best friends for 15 years. And I understand one of Mike's brothers was a real mentor for you also. Well, you know what he did? He removed all doubt. And I would say that he was a mentor, but what he did is he gave me permission. He said, do you think it's going to work? When I said, do you think this relocation thing will work? He says, do you think it'll work? And I said, yes. He said, then it will work. Oh, that was all I was hearing he gave me. But that's fabulous. Yeah. It influenced you. You can achieve anything when, what would you say? I would say you believe it passionately and you do it in the name of others, not yourself. And you allow yourself to do it afraid. Great. In a life that appears to be totally overboard to me, what does going overboard mean to you? What do you go overboard over? <laughs> well, I'm kind of overboard right now. Um, I'm helping my daughter start a new division of the company. I've taken on bringing in 150 to 180 women next year for a three-day program and getting a hundred speakers lined oh, up. you, Laura, can do it. And there was something else that Mike says, I can't believe you're doing that, too. And I can't Oh, I'm uh, serving on the executive committee of the advancement board here at Webster. Yeah. So, uh, that's taken a lot of time. Well, they are lucky to have you there. Thank you. You do a great job right. here. We all, one little, little, little thing I'd like to know, because I get very irritated over things myself. Okay. Is there anything that irritates you? People chewing with their mouth open. <laughs> you sound like my husband. He always reminds me of that. And final words of wisdom for budding entrepreneurs, be they 9 or 99. Follow your dream. Don't worry about the numbers. So many people say, the numbers don't work. Hell, I didn't even know what the numbers were. I didn't even know what, how to figure out numbers. And maybe it's different today, but I will tell you, if you have a passion and you have some money, I had $7,000 to invest. That was all. 
and I took it from Mike's retirement fund. I had already used mine up. And so failure was not an option. Oh, Laura, I love you so much. Oh, I really you. do. You've been one of my dearest friends, and I just can't thank you enough for the time you've given us today. Thank you. Thank you.